0: Sometime over the last 10 years, I just became more and more concerned about the future of our country. I mean, we see things and hear things that you and I just would not have dreamed of a few years ago.
1: Hello, welcome to The Davis Beat from your friends at The Davis Journal. I'm Tom Harrelson, the editor of The Davis Journal. I'm really excited today to have in our studio Congressman Chris Stewart.
0: Congressman, thank you for being here. Tom, great to be with you. We've known you and, uh, of course, your writing and uh, the publishing you've done for a long time, and it's an honor to be with you. I appreciate that. Thanks so much.
1: I'm excited about the book we're going to talk about, your brand new book, uh, The Final Fight for Freedom. It's available on Amazon. I guess pretty, pretty much everywhere books are sold. But I will tell you, honestly, when I first opened the book and read the prologue, I got scared. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that was kind of the intention or to get our attention or what, but tell me, tell me a little bit of where this came from.
0: Well, there's a long story there. I'll try to make it short. Um, you know, for those who are familiar with my other writing, you know, seven miracles that saved America, the miracle of freedom. Um, some of the, some of the works I've done for Deseret book and others, I'm by nature an optimist. I always have been, and I've certainly been an optimist about our country and the future of our country. And it kind of, is based on this premise. I think God cares about this country. I think we have a a special place and a special role in the world, and I've always believed that. But as I started to work, not so much in Congress, because I think other people feel the same way, and they don't work in Congress. I mean, this isn't what I'm about to describe as unique. But sometime over the last 10 years, I just became more and more concerned about the future of our country. I mean, we see things and hear things that you and I just would not have dreamed of a few years ago. I mean, surely that's true for other people. In fact, I had an experience um, that I, I reflected on a couple times here. It was, uh, we were at the butcher shop in Centerville. This was over Thanksgiving, so, you know, four or five months ago now. And, and uh, I walked in to just get, uh, get some, you know, get some meat. And uh, there's a couple people in there. And I noticed this older woman, she was kind of eyeing me. And, and uh, she came over and talked to me. She goes, you're Congressman Stewart. And I said, yeah. And she just she just fell into tears. And she just said, I'm so scared for our country. Uh, you know that didn't have things like that didn't happen five years ago or ten years ago. And then part of it is the work I do on the intelligence committee is really dramatic stuff. I mean, we see things and we're aware of things that every once in a while you just I mean, I'll lean over to the guy next to me and just say, "Man, we are in so much trouble." Or once in a while he'll lean over to me and say, yeah "What are we going to do? How how do we prevent this? Or how do we how do we prepare people for this?" So it's kind of a combination of things. I mean, just watching generally our society in the last few years, and so I I kind of started this internal debate in my mind kind of in my mind and my heart and that is you know i want to be optimistic i want to tell people you've got a lot to look forward to you know again our, our nation is stronger we've been through incredible challenges before and got through them but on the other hand there's part of me that says hey you really need to just tell people what it, what it is we're facing and, and give them your view of the future and tell them if we don't make some changes then we're in a for a world of hurt as a, as a people and as a nation and and so i think this book is a little bit uh, it reflects that effort. It was a, it really is just kind of, if we don't change some things, we're, as I just said, we're in a, we're in a, in for a huge challenge. I mean, we're going to get slapped across the head and, and it's going to be painful for people. And it's, it's going to be an unrecognizable nation if we don't, as I said, Tom, kind of make some changes. And so that's, that's kind of the genesis, genesis for this book, my thinking. It took me three years to write. It took wow. me a long, long time to do this. And,
1: and you did this along with your son, Dane.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so thanks for bringing that up. I mean, it's, I get asked that, well, why did you ro- co-write with your son? And I mean, there's actually two answers to the question. One is that he's a, he's a great writer. He's been a writer for a long time. I think he's probably a better writer than I am. But the second thing is because we really do talk about right at the very edge of a very uh, very sensitive classified information. And, uh, and I have to be really careful. I mean, I'll be told stuff on, you know, in a briefing and I'll come out and I might read that in the newspaper, but I can't talk about it. I can't confirm it or deny it. People ask, well, is this true? Well, the fact that it's in the newspaper doesn't mean that I can now confirm this is true. I have to say, hey, I can either confirm or deny, because obviously that would be giving way or confirming things. So, and, and I was worried about that in writing this book, because we do talk about very sensitive things, quantum computing, artificial intelligence, uh, biomedicine, bioweapons, et cetera, et cetera. And I wanted to be able to say, hey, look, I didn't write. I didn't do the research for those real sensitive programs. I had someone without a security clearance write that. We worked together and it was a way of kind of protecting myself in the in the sense that I could honestly say I didn't do that research that was done by someone someone else and so and and he did a terrific job and I was able to add some insights to it that I think brought it together really nicely now
1: it's interesting the book starts out with kind of a fictional situation uh, a father uh, things are falling apart completely i believe he's with his daughter yeah. but it of course segues into a very non-fictional very yeah. fact-based situation you mentioned the challenge you have knowing things, being on the intelligence committee that we shouldn't know and don't know, and yet you wanted to be able to put some of those those flavors into this. That had to be very challenging. Where do you draw the line on that?
0: Yeah, well, that's a great question, and it's hard to know where to draw the line. You know, that style of writing is something that uh, I did a, earlier on these two other nonfiction books. The uh, seven Miracles that Saved America, and then The Miracle of Freedom, as I mentioned before. And my publisher in New York did not want us to do that. And and what I mean by that, I mean, is these are books of nonfiction. But in each chapter, we have kind of a first-person narrative. We tell what is happening at that time in history through a character who lived at that time. I mean, for example, the Battle of Jamestown or and Surviving Jamestown is told... We, know we tell why it was important and what happened there, but we also interject these stories of this young girl who was living in Jamestown, and she sneaks outside the, the gates of the old fort there to the James River and digs worms, and that's how she survived, was eating worms throughout the winter. And, uh, and again, we tell it through the pr- first person. And again, my publisher in New York did not want to do that, but we think it was a really effective way to tell the story. And, uh, and it, it just kind of personalizes and allows people to see and to feel. This is what it was really like at the time. Uh, so, for example, we talk about the Battle Midway. Well, we do that through the eyes of some of the combat pilots and different things. Wanted to do this book the same way. So we start out, as you said, Tom, with this. You don't know who he is yet. It turns out he's a, he's a very well-known media figure, comes from a billionaire family, a bit of the elitist among us, if you will. And he's with his nine-year-old daughter and hes they're starving to death in their home in Washington, D.C., of all places. And and he has to go out and navigate his way through the riots and the chaos and the gangs of people starving to death in a major U.S. city. Uh, so again, it's a pretty dramatic way to start the book, but it kind of set the tone for, hey, this is what we think uh what we think we want to explore is where would this end? And a good way to do that is, again, through kind of a first-person story.
1: Yeah, it makes it much more relatable rather than just spilling out facts of, that you may be aware yeah. of. If you can put yourself as a reader in the position of that individual, then it really hits home a lot more effectively, I would yeah. say. Yeah,
0: and that's what we hope to do, obviously. And it also—you you realize— uh, hey, if it could happen to this person, it could happen to any one of us, Sure. and I mean, it will happen to all of us. And then, kind of carry those characters throughout the book. Uh, and it was it was fun. It was kind of hard to do in this case, but it was actually a lot of fun once it came together.
1: How do you write a book over three years with all the interruptions? Yeah. That has to be challenging yeah. in and of itself. Well,
0: people ask me that when I find time to write, and a lot of it is just late at night because I'm kind of in the habit of doing that. But I'm on an airplane for you know almost ten hours a week too. You know, well seven or eight. And it, you know, it was a time then that I could write. And, sure. and the reason it took so long is honestly, some of it, some of it was because things are just changing so quickly. I would write something for the story and then it would happen. I'd go, well, I can't, I can't include that anymore. I mean, it's already happened. Right. And, and the world just changes so fast to stay ahead of it for this book. Because this book really is a look ahead. It's not just an examination of what's happened. It's projecting. This is what's coming. Uh, that's the whole point of it. This is what's coming. And so, like I said, it, it, the, our world is changing so quickly. Uh, we had to kind of skip to keep ahead of it. And that took sure. Time.
1: Now, I don't want to give away too much because obviously people are going to want to pick this book up. But it really, within the book, there are four books, uh, four, di- four different kinds of segments, I guess you might say. One of the thoughts that really was permeating my soul when I read it was, and I don't know if it was a, a chapter or just stated in, in one of them, that America is committing suicide. Yeah. And I know that's that's the, a lot of the genesis of what's happening here. Uh, talk about that a little bit because I've got several questions I want to go down that line
0: with yeah, so and I mean isn't that a isn't that a i mean isn't that a sobering premise? America is committing national suicide, and I've thought a lot about that, and I use the phrase really carefully I mean I don't want to sound dramatic and I don't want to sound pessimistic or despondent, but it's true. I mean, and you, I could show you so many examples of it, and of course we do in the book, where we're doing things that just virtually make no sense at all. We shouldn't be doing them, and yet we are. And, uh, and we also quote leaders from Abraham Lincoln through Reagan and others who make this point again and again. Abraham Lincoln said it very well. It, it might even be there on that, on that first page that you, that you show there. Yeah,
1: that it says, uh, If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be author and finisher. As a nation of freemen, we must live through all time, or die by suicide.
0: Yeah, and and who's who's the author of that? Abraham, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, so I mean, he saw this coming, and other leaders have too. I mean, uh, Ronald Reagan famously talked about how you know the only way we'll we'll be destroyed is if we destroy ourselves, and it's true. No nation will ever destroy this country. China, as powerful as they are, they will never destroy this country, unless we weaken ourselves to the point where they say, okay, now is the time, and that's that's kind of the premise of the book. We'd weaken ourselves and destroy ourselves and contend with ourselves to such a degree that we're no longer able or we're so distracted we won't defend ourselves. And then China takes advantage of that. Now, they're not going to send troops, you know, into the San Francisco Bay. Uh, They won't need to. They'll use these very exquisite new weapon systems that we talk about again, quantum computers, artificial intelligence, bioweapons, and others that they could bring us to our knees and, and never fire a shot from a traditional white rifle or aircraft.
1: I like one of the quotes you use in here from Albert Einstein. It's one of my favorite quotes, and you mentioned that it's actually kind of a paraphrase of something he said. It talks about, I do not know what, happ- what weapons World War III will be fought with, but one thing is for certain, certain, World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, famously quoted once again. No one can actually identify him saying that, but we're going to give him credit for it. Absolutely.
1: It's been used for for generations. And I I
0: think probably he did say it. There's enough people who, you know, although we can't find the exact time. But, I mean, it's true. The next war is going to be unlike anything we've ever seen before, and we get a a little bit of a flavor of that. But not most, most people don't get them get much for example it's I, the third time i've mentioned it, but quantum computing uh i mean we are in an existential battle with china to d- be the first to develop quantum computing because whoever develops it first it doesn't matter who gets second because they will be able to stop anyone from de- from completing their research it's your first or you never have it right and with quantum computing i mean w- d- interesting I'll, i won't go into a lot it's, it's fascinating to me in quantum physics But um, with quantum computing, I mean, there aren't that many applications to it. You could do some modeling for some drug uses and a few things, but mostly the application is breaking encryption. And what would take us thousands of years or tens of thousands of years, even with the most powerful computers we have, you know, computers that are just beyond imaginable how fast they are that we have now. Still, it could take uh, you know just an incredibly long time to break really deep encryption. Quantum computing would do it in a fraction of a second, and with that, you now have your entire financial system at risk. You have every weapon system at risk. Again, they could go in and because we couldn't protect any of our own research, they could stop all of our research in quantum computing or artificial intelligence or anything else. Um, but a lot of people, if you ask them, well, what do you know about quantum computing? Or does it matter? Most people would say no. But we're a few years away from it, and it changes our world if we don't win that race,
1: trying to like it to a situation that's going on right now at the time we're taping this, the pending perhaps invasion of Ukraine by the Soviets, uh, I guess they're called Soviets. I' not sure if they're still Soviets yeah. or Russians. One of the things I've heard is that what what scares Vladimir Putin more than outside interference is internal conflict. yeah. Um, isn't it in essence what you're saying here? If we don't protect ourselves from within, we, or if we erode from within, we're very vulnerable to the outside.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, other nations watch us. President Xi and China watches us. I mean, he facilitates this contention and this breakdown in our society and breakdown in trust and government and everything else. He, he facilitates it. They call them warrior diplomats where they, uh, they use diplomatic efforts all around the world to, to, you know, facilitate their propaganda and their ideas. Uh, you know, President Putin watches it. The mullahs in Iran, et cetera, et cetera. They all are aware of this. But you know, Tom, you bring up another thing which is it, which is interesting, and i want to it's not I'm not about the book, but i I think I want to mention it if we could. It's important, and that is as we look at as we look at Russia, and by the way, there's some reporting today as we speak that Russia's you know withdrawing their troops don't believe that it's it's certainly not true. now they might at some point, but they're certainly not doing it right now, or
1: is that just part of his? his game he plays
0: well it, it, it is that's part of it and part of it is i just think uh there's just some lousy reporting going on right now uh but a lot of it is building the uncertainty i mean he, he doesn't want to announce the, the day and the hour that he's going to invade so he's going to you know bluff and kind of obfuscate and you know make it more difficult for ukrainian military to be prepared but As you said, the one thing that he fears, the one thing that Vladimir Putin fears, he doesn't fear losing Russian soldiers in an invasion, in a military operation. He's terrified of losing Russian soldiers week after week. Soldiers coming home in bloody bags because of an insurgency, because freedom fighters, Uh, because the Ukrainian people say, you've taken our country, but we're going to fight for our freedom still and evidence of that is very clear afghanistan with russia and afghanistan with america and those lessons are not lost on vladimir putin and it's the one thing that this president could do i think that would persuade him not to invade and that is say we will arm and equip and facilitate a ukrainian resistance movement and you will have to pay a bloody price in your occupation if we were to be very clear on that, I think we could preclude the uh, the invasion. But it's the only thing that Vladimir Putin is afraid of.
1: I know. Uh, I, I, if I'm if I'm correct in this, I think Reagan, when he was president, had a situation he was similar. But he was basically saying to the people in the countries, who were rebelling against the government, we will support you. Yeah. That internal conflict that would erode that regime is is that kind of what you're talking yeah, exactly.
0: about here yeah exactly i mean we saw it with uh, radio free europe and other things we're going to support you politically and 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 from a philosophical point of view to you know more direct support another great example of it uh, was this the support we gave them hoajedine in in afghanistan against the russian invasion and the russian occupation with with, uh, you know, surface air missiles are capable of bringing down the Russian helicopters, which they were so dependent on. And I mean, that one thing changed the outcome of the Russian occupation there.
1: Do you think um, if Trump had been reelected that you might have a a different approach to what we're doing nationwide right now with regards to to this as opposed to what President Biden's doing?
0: You mean with in, in regards to the Ukraine? Yes. Well, and, and look, I'm obviously a Republican, and, and I was friends with President Trump, uh, although we didn't agree on everything. Um, but I, I think one thing is, is just inescapable, and it's hard to prove something that you know, we'll never know because history changed. But there was a reason that Vladimir Putin went into Crimea and into the eastern part of the Ukraine, the Donetsk region, while President Obama mm-hmm. and President, Vice President Biden were in power. He didn't do it. While President Trump was in power, and he was just afraid of him. Um, I I don't want to say he respected him. I think some did. Uh, I mean, there were certain world leaders who begrudgingly respected President Trump, but I think Putin was genuinely afraid of him. He thought, what will he do? He didn't know how he would respond. But one thing is very, very clear. After Afghanistan... There's no question, and we know this from intelligence and other sources, there's no question that Vladimir Putin looked at this administration and said, now is the time. We need to go now. We can't wait any longer. So uh, all of the evidence in in the intel clearly was almost definitive. Yeah, he's going to invade. Now, again, he may change his mind, and I've outlined how I think we could persuade him, but if he doesn't invade, it won't be because he was never going to. It was because he has changed his mind
1: it be interesting. We, we post this probably in the next couple of weeks where we're at in two weeks compared to the yeah. day we're taping this, but yeah. uh, I want to change gears a little bit and talk about Washington, D.C. Speaking of wars, <laughs> how do we break the gridlock back there, or at least the perceived gridlock that there there just seems to be no real spirit of compromise between the left and the right? What what, what needs yeah. to happen there?
0: Boy, if you knew the answer to that, please tell me, right? We'd both be rich. Yeah. And we'd, we would make our country better. Um, You know, I get asked that all the time, and I think people are dissatisfied with the answer, but it's the best answer that I know, and that is it's a combination of things, and I'm just going to mention two of them. One of them is the fact that our nation is going through a period of time when we actually have not just politics in conflict, but real philosophies. Real deeply held philosophies in conflict, and we've got to work our way through them. For example, equality is being redefined in a way it's never been defined before. Equality before was always, everyone has a fair chance. Now, I know that we haven't been perfect at that, but that's always been the premise of our nation. Every person has a a fair chance. But it's now being redefined to every outcome has to be the same. Regardless of someone's effort or, or their circumstances, well, that's a dramatic redefinition of what equality is. That that's what we're that's an example of what we're working our way through. And as we work our way through this, there's going to be contention. So I use that as an example of where there really truly are a redefining time in our society in our country, which is why I think this is such a critical time to get this fight right. Because there are some who will redefine this country in a way that we would not recognize it. And our founding fathers would never have recognized it. At the same time, there's politics. And that is Nancy Pelosi, I say this with a, a bit of admiration, she is a ruthless, effective political leader. And she holds her her uh, folks in line. And she's able to manipulate and to compel political outcomes. I'll give you a good example of that. Uh, you know, we we did a bill Well, for example, uh, we did a national suicide hotline prevention number, uh, created a 988 number nationally for someone in the middle of a mental health crisis or considering suicide. That was bipartisan. We had hundreds of Democrats support us on that. Then this last Congress, Speaker Pelosi told her Democratic colleagues, you can't sponsor any Republican bills. And don't allow them to sponsor any of yours. We're in the majority. We're going to push through the things we want on Democratic bills or Democratic votes alone. Well, I mean, that's not just a part of a government or a people going through a, you know, a, a kind of a reappraisal of their own values. That's just hard partisan politics. Uh, but unfortunately, that was the response to President Trump in and in a very controversial time, and that's kind of where we are right now.
1: Do Personally, are you in favor of term limits for senators, as an example?
0: Oh, yeah, I've always said that, and I, and I sincerely believe it. And, you know, it's easier for me to say because I'm not going to be in Congress forever. I mean, that's not my goal and ambition to be there for 30 years.
1: Wait, who am I going to interview in 30 years?
0: <laughs> Someone other than me, I think. <laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, we laugh about it, but it's true. I mean, the next person you interview, they'll, they'll be doing a great job, too. Um, so I've always supported it. And I think our founding fathers intended it to be that way. They always thought that there should be citizen, uh, you know, citizen legislatures, people who just left the farm, left their business, came and worked in DC for a while, and then went back and, and did their other career.
1: Sure. Is it fair to say that Part of the problem in Washington is on both sides. It's not just driven by the left or driven by the right.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's true. And and I'm happy to admit that. I mean, I recognize and and look again, I'm a conservative. I'm going to fight for these principles, but that doesn't mean that everything Republicans do or or the process that we uh, that we kind of push through is 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 perfect because sometimes we're not.
1: So the end of this book, which we'll go back to, you do have a chapter called Hope. Yeah. Um, And I think you mentioned there are two things that essentially have to happen to, to keep the country from going down this, this awful tunnel that it could be going down. What are those?
0: Well, I mean, the primary thing is this. Um, again, kind of premise of the book, recapping, hey, we're committing national suicide, we're doing such foolish things. At one point, uh, our, our adversaries will act and they will complete the destruction of our country. So how do we stop that? Well, we don't stop it militarily by preparing to engage China. You gotta stop it at the first step, and that is the divisiveness and the contention within that is weakening our own country. And, and how we conclude this is the reason we have hope is a couple things. Number one is we, we still matter to the world. I still think God is depending on this country to be the light to the world. And if not us, who, for heaven's sakes? I mean, because there's no one. Germany can't do it. The UK can't do it. Japan can't do it. Now, Vladimir Putin would love to do it, but he can't. Russia can't. President Xi in China expects to do it. But we don't want him to. I mean, he his his vision of the world is very very different than a free and a democratic uh, Western you know democracy. And so we have to complete that responsibility. And then how do we do that? Well, it comes back to this premise: you've got to give people kind of that social pressure relief valve. The thing that our founding fathers intended, and that is for each state to independently be able to say, "This is what we're going to do." So, for example. If California wants to implement a uh, a one-payer system and pay for uh, the medical care of virtually every citizen in California, including millions who are there illegally, but if they choose to do that, and they're going to double taxes on every California to do that, knock yourself out. Let them do it. Let them try that. If Utah, on the other hand, says no, we're not going to do that, and here's the way we're going to go forward, then allow Utah to do that. Allow Vermont. Which, by the way, did try single payer systems, you may remember, in I think 2011. And it lasted 18 months. I mean, they couldn't do it, but they tried. Well, I was glad for them to try. So, and, and by the way, progressives and the left, when we think of states' rights, that's generally associated with conservatives. A contraire, it's really not true. Progressives have been pretty aggressive on exercising state. States' rights. Let me give you a couple examples. They said, nope, we're sanctuary cities or sanctuary states. We're going to ignore federal law. Federal immigration law, we will not enforce it here in this city or this state. Well, that's declaring a state's right. Uh, I think it's foolish. But I would, I would be willing to accept let states, if they want to take that view, let them. I think it's wrong. I think it will be destructive to the overall benefit of our country. Uh, a- another example, they've, they've legalized uh, many drugs. Marijuana, including Oregon, has legalized heart drugs. Well, I think that's insane. I think you could it's impossible to argue that's in the public, ben- public health benefit. But once again, if Oregon chooses to do that, I think they should be able to do that. And then if you support that policy, go live there. Go move there. If, on the other hand, you support uh, a, another real contentious issue that I feel strongly about is religious liberty. If you live in Utah another state that wants to protect religious liberty, let them do that. And, uh, and it's what our founding fathers in intent, intended, and it's the only way we can keep our nation together through this very fractious time is allow people to experiment and states to take a different path and then let people choose which they support. Are you optimistic? I'm optimistic, but I'm scared. And I don't know if those are mutually exclusive. Maybe scared's not the right word. You should have read
1: this book. Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) Uh, I'm optimistic, but I'm deeply concerned. And part of it is that, uh, you know, I, I can just see the writing on the wall. And and part of it is it, it, so many people are just seem to be okay with it. But I'm optimistic, again, I've, I've mentioned this, Tom, but I think, again, America has a unique role in the world, and I just don't think the world's coming to an end by Thursday. I think we've got more time, and so I think we're going to find a way to work our way through it.
1: Hope you're right, so yeah. we could do more interviews.
0: Well, and I hope we're right for our kids, right? Absolutely. For our grandkids. I sure. mean, as I said, you know, you and I sitting across from each other, we see a world that we would have never imagined for our kids no, uh, no. and our grandkids. And we want to give them all the things that we've been given.
1: Never could have perceived the yep. things that we've experienced. Absolutely yep. true. Congressman Chris Stewart, thank you for being here. The, the title of the book is The Final Fight for Freedom. I know it's available on Amazon. Deseret yep. book? other books. Still? I think
0: pretty much everywhere. Yeah, I hope so.
1: What are you hearing about it? Good things?
0: Yeah. When it debuted, uh, it was number one on three or four different lists. Interestingly, can't keep it in stock. Uh, really? Publishers cannot, printers cannot get paper. And so uh, we had a, a smaller printing than we hoped because we l- couldn't get the paper. And wow. uh, and then they went, like I say, I think they sold out in the first three or four days. And so Amazon is like, a, for a while, they were, they're two week wait. I think they're back on track now. So that's great. We'll hope it keeps going.
1: Good luck on that one. Appreciate you, sir. It's it, sir. Congressman Christopher. Th- th- thank you for being with us. That's it for Davis Beat. Uh, we'll be back again with another podcast. Again, you can always follow us on. Our website, davisjournal.com. Follow us for news, follow us to listen to the podcast, and subscribe if you can. And until next time, uh, as I always say, when it comes to local news, including things that are going on nationally, you can't beat the Davis Journal.